Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to our uh, Progressive Covenantalism series, and thank you all for coming to the sanctuary today. Uh, they're going to be doing, I guess, a consignment sale this week in the gym, so the gym is not available right now, but Lord willing, we'll be back in there next uh, Well, let, let me also clarify, we are not going to have this Sunday school next Sunday. So the, the Ruth Sunday school is starting right now uh, simultaneous with this in the, in, across the hall from us uh, with Jerry and others leading that. That will still meet next Sunday, but uh, this Sunday school is going to skip a week and we'll come back in two weeks, uh, hopefully in the, in the gym. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn back to where we were last week, briefly, Psalm 87. Psalm chapter 87, and I know it may be a little harder to read the screen, I've just given you're probably further away from it, and it may be a little harder to see, but we'll, we'll try to work with the screen as best we can today as we look through a number of texts. Greg, how are you doing? I'm good. Can Better you... than I was last, last <laughs> yes, week. Yes, you, you got over uh, so a, rough, a rough week there. Can you open us in prayer, and then we'll jump in? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for yet another opportunity to uh, gather together and study your word, especially, Lord, this series where we are considering how to fit the Bible together, how to put all the pieces in their proper place to see uh, the great and glorious picture of who you are, who Jesus is, of the salvation that comes through him. Um, Lord, all, uh, Lord, to build your kingdom through your covenants. Um, and so, Lord, help us. In these few moments, to uh, continue to make uh, good sense of what your word teaches and uh, to connect uh, the things that need connecting and to reach proper conclusions as we think about, especially the difference between uh, this whole issue of Israel and the church and how we're supposed to think about that. Lord, please just give uh, an unusual abundance of wisdom and clarity. Uh, Lord, also humility. Uh, Lord, as we know, this is, uh, this is the, the nexus of a lot of disagreement amongst fellow Christians. And so, Lord, help us have firm conviction and yet a gracious humility about us. Uh, and we just pray that we know your word and know Jesus better because of this time. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just to, to kind of give you a quick synopsis of where we hope to go today uh, with, this, uh, with this particular message and then going forward for several weeks, the, the central sort of debatable issue of what we're discussing these weeks is the relationship between, Christ, uh, between Israel and the church. And um, we started last Sunday making an argument that the church is the restored in time Israel in Christ, the Messiah. Our goal today is to review a couple things we said last Sunday, but then to move into new territory in the New Testament, uh, further trying to enhance this argument. And so because it's so important to our argument, we're going to spend a, a period of extended time on this. And we hope that by the end, it will be persuasive that, that this argument, I hope you'll see, is I hope you'll understand is biblical. And then from there, we're going to talk about implications of that and how we understand a lot, of other, a lot of other issues that are connected with it. So a reminder from last Sunday, Psalm 87, I'll just read a few verses. It's not a long psalm. Uh, look with me at verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. So clearly Jerusalem is, the, is who we're talking about, the city we're talking about. Verse 4, among those who know me, I mention Rahab. Now that's a word to represent Egypt in the Old Testament. So Egypt and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. So we would argue this is one of the texts in the Old Testament where people who are from these other nations, 
even enemies of God's people, as they trust in the, the true Messiah, as they come to know the Lord, they will be counted as having been born in Jerusalem. It will be as if they are true citizens, as if they were born in Zion. And so, this one and that one were born there. These are people from Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Cush. These are enemies of God's people. Mm -hmm. But as they are converted and brought in, it will be as though they had equal standing and equal citizenship in Israel. Uh, Greg, any other thoughts about the, the Old Testament gives us sneak previews of what's coming, of Gentiles yeah. coming in. It doesn't tell us the, all the ins and outs of how that will happen. Any, right. any thoughts as we, as we step into the, all this? Um. I mean, there, there's a lot of pieces. I mean, we've used the, the box top um, picture and illustration. It's also like a lot of different threads being woven together. And it's how they're woven together um, that I think is what's most surprising to the Jews uh, in the first century is they were expecting an outcome of all this, this prophetic activity, even of, you know, they, they obviously knew Psalm 87, um, but when they were thinking about when the Messiah comes, when Israel is restored and all this, like they had a particular uh, outcome that they were looking forward to, that they were expecting that when Jesus came, it didn't meet their expectations because God actually, God obviously knew how it was supposed to fit together. Um, and I think we talked about this, like the mystery uh, the big mystery isn't that the Gentiles would come to Jerusalem, but it's that they would be fellow heirs, that they would, they would become, as you've already said, as though they were natural-born Jews. Like they would be, become the people of God in every way that the Jews were, but it was how that would happen is where a lot of the confusion would take place, you know, alongside a lot of the other things about Christ and His ministry that just threw the Jews continually off kilter because He was not meeting their expectations of what a Messiah should be, and therefore his people and the church and all of that, it, it just it didn't line up with what they thought. Um, and so, you know, seeing it like we're doing here, you had that, that illustration or um, the picture in here of the, the, was it the dinosaur puzzle? Yeah, yeah, it was um, a Lego. It was a Lego The Lego box. puzzle. It's like, you know, they were expecting to get like one kind of creature and a different one came out, and it just continually cause problems because it wasn't what they expected. Yes, that's well said. So let's just go ahead and skip to Matthew chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, turn to, to Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist preparing the way. Matthew chapter 3, and just for the sake of time, we'll just mention really quickly here, you have uh, in verse 5, Jerusalem and all Judea are going out to be baptized uh, in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And verse 7, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Look at verse 9, Matthew 3, 9. And do not presume to say to yourselves, what were they saying? We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, doesn't this touch on what we're talking about? They're, they're presuming on their ethnicity. They're saying literally, because I am Jewish, because I'm an actual physical descendant of Abraham, I'm good to go. And that may sound weird, but in between the Old and New Testament, there were books written by the Jewish people. Some of them are apocryphal books and on and on. One is called The Wisdom of Solomon. You can read it uh, anywhere. You can look it up online. In, in a book like The Wisdom of Solomon, it's not inspired. It's written by Jewish people between the, the Old and New Testament. In that book, what do you see? You see the Jewish people speaking, and this is theologically incorrect, but they say, essentially, to paraphrase, the Lord is going to spare us from His wrath because of who we are. We are His people, but the Gentiles are going to get it. That's basically, over and over, they'll say things like that. And so, do you see this presumption? We have Abraham as our father. We're genetic descendants of Abraham. We're going to be fine. 
And John says, no, you've got to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And you know what? If God needs to raise up children of Abraham, can he do it from non-ethnic Israelites? He can do it from stones on the ground. God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. God can, God can we'll see it by the end of Matthew, Gentiles can be brought in and become true uh, offspring of Abraham. So now we're just going to look at a smattering of texts in the New Testament. You can look at the screen or turn there. Philippians chapter 3 would probably be worth turning to. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul is dealing with uh, some, the potential of some false teaching from some of the uh, Jewish false teachers. And just look with us here at the first couple of verses. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, look at verses 2 and 3 very carefully. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, we, probably those verses are familiar, but let's stop and think about what he just said. L- look with us here. He calls the opponents dogs. I want you to think for a second. His opponents are Jewish false teachers who are teaching that circumcision is a prerequisite for salvation, right? Like in the, the book of Galatians, same sort of thing. And what does Paul do? He calls the Jewish false teachers dogs. Look out for the dogs. Now, why would that be particularly insulting to a Jewish false teacher? The Jewish people called who dogs? The Gentiles. So Paul is switching the tables around. He's going, okay, the, the Jewish person who rejects Jesus and accepts circumcision is really acting like a Gentile. They're acting like a pagan, a, a dog. And then he says, look out for the evildoers. These are people instructing people to keep, keep the Mosaic law as a means of right standing with God. And he says, that's evil doing. And then he says, look out for those who do what? Who mutilate the flesh. He's referring to anyone who teaches that circumcision is a necessary prerequisite for right standing with God, he says, what you're doing is like mutilating the flesh. It's no different than pagan rituals where people cut themselves and harm their bodies to to appease a pagan God. And he uses a word here that's connected to the word from 1 Kings 18, when uh, the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves. It's It's a connected Greek word. Remember, they cut themselves. And Paul's using that kind of word to say, if you think circumcision is gonna achieve anything in terms of your standing before God, you're reverting to paganism. So you're not actually truly Jewish. You're a, you're a Gentile dog. You're not actually obeying God. You're teaching evil works. And number three, you're not really practicing true circumcision. You're practicing pagan mutilation. And he goes, guess who is the true circumcision? We, the church, are the true circumcision. We are those who are truly regenerated in heart. We are the true offspring of Abraham. Greg, th- thoughts about what he's doing here in this text? I know that covers some of it already there. <coughs> well, I mean, looking at verse 3, when he says, we are the circumcision, the significance of that phrase, like you were saying, I mean, that, that was the Jewish identifier, the Jewish identity. We are circumcised. All the Gentile pagans are not circumcised. Circumcision was the mark of being set apart to God um, and, you know, belonging to his people. Like God would, God would reject you and you'd be cut off from the people. Like you can't have fellowship with the people if you're uncircumcised. Like you just can't do it. Even... Um, was it on Moses on his way to Egypt? God meets him along the way, 
um, and was going to put him to death because his kids weren't circumcised. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his wife, you know, does it real quick and throws it at his feet and says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So it was, it was incredibly significant to be of the circumcision. And so for Paul to say, we Christians, Jew and Gentile Christians, are the circumcision, like that is absolutely huge because he's, he's signifying this transfer that's taken place. The people of God, yes, if you want to use circumcision, but what is this circumcision marked by? That's what he says, who worship how? By the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This ties into the larger reality of circumcision of the heart. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not enough to have your body marked. You have to have your heart um, marked um, so that you're truly set apart to God. You can experience all the physical signs to your body that you want, and it doesn't mean you're devoted to God at all. It doesn't mean you belong to God at all. It doesn't mean you're right with God. And that's what Paul, I mean, he's not mentioning the heart circumcision specifically here, but that's what this is drawing from, is the true people of God are circumcised, yes, but not in the body, in the heart. And it is that circumcision of heart that truly sets us apart to God because it, it introduces regeneration, it introduces the new birth, it introduces the writing of the law on the heart, a, 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 a introduction of new life, a new inclination of the soul to God. Um, and so saying we are the circumcision, that's, that's, like you said, that's a really radical statement for Paul to make. So do you see how Paul is flipping the language? The, the Jewish <clears throat> false teachers are being called dogs, Gentiles. The Gentile Philippian Christians are being called the true circumcision. Do you see how he's flipping the categories, who the true people of God are and who are not truly the people of God? And let me just quote Don Carson here. It's on the screen. I don't know if you'll be able to read that. Don Carson writes this about that verse. Paul's point is that although many conservative Jews spoke of themselves as the circumcision and of Gentiles as unclean dogs, in reality, by rejecting Jesus Christ, they themselves are the dogs, and their vaunted circumcision is nothing more than mutilation if it claims prerogatives for itself beyond its proper place in redemptive history. And if you don't think that's what Paul's thinking about, look at the very next verses here in in Philippians 3. Look at verse 4. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what does he give? He gives his Jewish credentials. So look, circumcised on the eighth day uh, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Does this sound pretty Jewish right now? Uh, As to the law, a Pharisee. That's about as devout as you get in terms of Judaism. Uh, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then look at verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, including his Jewish credentials, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes from God by faith. So do you see here, what is the identifying marker of the people of God? It is union with Christ. It is not the Jewish credentials. Paul says, I've got, if you want to play the game of Jewish credentials, guess who's going to win? Paul will beat anybody. Paul will say, I've got the best Jewish credentials in the world. You cannot have better credentials than the Apostle Paul. And Paul says, it's all rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It's through union with Christ that we experience truly becoming the part of the people of God and truly becoming the offspring of Abraham. That's how salvation works, is through knowing Jesus. For, for, let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians to our left. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
This is a brief one. just want to look at a couple phrases here that, again, hint at the same ideas. Uh, remember, the Corinthians are almost, or most of them would have been Gentiles, Christians. And listen to what Paul says to start off chapter 10. He's telling the story of the 40 years in the wilderness, and he says this, 10 verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, etc. Do you know what he just called the Corinthians' fathers? He just said, our fathers passed through the Red Sea. He's talking to Gentile, Gentile Christians, our fathers. How can he call the Jewish patriarchs our fathers if these are Gentiles? The answer is the Gentiles are now Abraham's true seed because they've trusted Christ. They are now part of the restored Israel. So we can say that our father is Abraham. That's amazing because I'm not Jewish. But in Christ, Abraham is my father. Abraham is your father. And so that's, that, that's the only way Paul, that can make sense out of Paul calling him our father. And if you look down at verse, uh, if you skip down to verse 18, same chapter, it says this. Consider, and the ESV says, the people of Israel... And you may have a footnote, if you look at the bottom of the page, the Greek is literally, consider Israel according to the flesh. In other words, in Paul's mind, there is an Israel according to the flesh, and that would imply an Israel according to the Spirit, or a true Israel, to be distinguished from from merely ethnic Israel. Okay, Greg, I'm going to bring in for this next part here, I want you to explain uh, Romans 2, the end of Romans chapter 2. So let's turn there uh, again to our left, Romans chapter 2, and Greg, if you can walk us through this last paragraph or so. Let's start in verse, uh, can you start in verse 24 and just kind of walk us through to the end of that chapter? Yeah, so let's read that whole section real quick, 24 through 29, and then uh, we will make some comments as we go. Um, Verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical." But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. (coughs) And so, I don't know how, oh yeah, it is is highlighting up there. So, let's go back to verses 24, that first slide you got there, uh, 24 through uh, 27. And let's look at a few things here. So, um, he's talking here primarily to Jews. He'd started out chapter 1 saying, <clears throat> you know, the whole world, the Gentile world and their idolatry, and it's just talking about how they're given over. But then he turns his sights on the Jews and says, you're no better off because you have the law and you break it all the time. You make a big deal about having the law, but you're a hypocrite, basically. Um, you do the very same things you tell everybody else they shouldn't do. And so Paul here is helping the Jews understand you are in just as much of a spiritual pickle as the Gentiles are. And so he says in verse 24 that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, meaning your hypocrisy is actually doing God's name harm in the world because you're not living according to what you say you should live. And then he gets to verse 25. He says, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. 
But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And so he's already introducing here this idea that circumcision isn't some like magical thing that, you know, makes you immune to God's wrath, makes you immune to any consequences. He's like, "Mm -mm -mm." there there has to be something more. Uh, And it comes to obedience, disobedience. And so in verse 26, he introduces something that to the Jew would be a scandal. This would be a scandal to a Jew. It says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And what he's saying is, if someone who's not circumcised obeys the law better than you Jews, then actually he's going to be more of a circumcised person than you are, is basically what he's saying. He's going to prove himself to be more set apart to God than you are. Look at verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. And so he's already showing circumcision. It has to, it has to mean more than just the mark on your body. Uh, something else is going on here. And that's where verse 28 comes in. And this introduces something again to a Jew. This would be absolutely scandalous. But if you remember the stuff we were talking about last week, about Gentiles being included in what you read from Psalm 87 and other passages, that there's going to be people who aren't ethnic Jews who are going to be treated as though they're ethnic Jews, literal children of Abraham. Verse 28, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So he just said circumcision is not about what you do to your body. Look at verse 29, But a Jew, we could say a true Jew, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. And so what Paul just did here, he hasn't specifically applied it yet, but he is going to basically argue from this point that your being a Jew, a true Jew, is not about your ethnic descent, but about whether or not your heart has been circumcised. He just upended the whole Jewish expectation of what it meant to belong to the people of God. Because remember, for the Jews, if you're circumcised, you're a Jew. If you're uncircumcised, you're a pagan Gentile. And what Paul just says, no, a true Jew is not someone who has an external circumcision, but one who has the internal. And so a a Jew, if you're a Christian, uh, that means you've been circumcised in heart. You are more Jewish than an ethnic Jewish person because your heart's been circumcised by God. Thoughts? No, that, that's, that's well said. I'll, I'll quote a couple commentators. Uh, Doug Moo is one of the finest Romans commentators alive today, in my opinion. And this is something he said. Uh, he says, uh, Paul goes beyond any first century Jewish viewpoint, this is the blue part, in suggesting that physical circumcision is no longer required and in implicitly applying the term Jew to those who are not ethnically Jewish. The true Jew, as he would say here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Ritterboss puts it, we find here a radicalizing of the concept of Jew and thereby of the definition of the essence of the people of God. Tom Schreiner, who's also one of the great Romans commentators alive today, they've written two of the best commentaries on Romans in the English language that I'm aware of. Tom Schreiner says this about that text in the pink part. He says, by saying that Gentiles who have the Spirit are true Jews, Paul hopes to re- provoke the Jews to jealousy, the ethnic Jews to jealousy, and bring them within the blessings of the new covenant. You hear what he's doing? It's like Romans 11. We're showing that the, the, the benefit of the Messiah has come to non-Jewish people. 
who trust Christ. That is meant to provoke the ethnic Jews to say, hey, that's our Messiah. We want in on that too. And it's meant to provoke them through, through a holy jealousy to come to know Christ. It's, so it's, this is not about anti-Semitism. It's not about disparaging the ethnic Jew. It's about, if anything, maximizing their Messiah, their Savior, and, and inviting them in and say, hey, we've been able to benefit from the glories of your Messiah. You should too come and trust in Christ. Uh, that, 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 should be, that should be the way that we think about it. Turn with us now to the back of the New Testament, First Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I think the first couple of chapters of 1 Peter are amazing on this topic because they're so strong. Uh, let's just look at the greeting, first couple of verses, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are what? Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, etc., now, to call these churches, which are made up largely of Gentiles throughout these regions of the Roman Empire, to call them the elect exiles of the dispersion, if you know your Old Testament, you know that's what the Jewish people were called, the elect, the, who, who are the chosen people in the Old Testament? It's Israel. And the exiles are the Israel exiles, right? The ones who are exiled to Babylon and Assyria. So the elect exiles of the dispersion, that's in a completely Jewish label. And who does Peter give it to? He gives it to the church made up of Gentiles and Jews together in Christ. That's an amazing thing. I'll, I'll quote here uh, Tom Schreiner again in his commentary. Quote, in any case, to speak of his readers as chosen means that they have been elected by God. And this is remarkable since the readers are primarily Gentiles. The Old Testament often designates Israel as God's chosen and elect people. Peter indicates at the outset, therefore, that the church of Jesus Christ is the restored Israel of God, His chosen people. He forecasts here the theme of 1 Peter 2.9, where the church is called a chosen uh, race. Any other thoughts on that, Greg? Not yet, no. Okay, if you skip down toward the latter part of the first chapter, look at verse, um, verse uh, 17. And uh, it says here, If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or wrinkle. So you see here, they've been saved from the feudal ways of their forefathers, which would be pagan Gentiles, because most of them were that. Now go to chapter 2, where it just gets really strong. The language is very clear, I think. Look at chapter 2. We could really read all of this. Let's just read a few verses here. Let's look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Skip to verse 5. I just read verse 5, didn't I? Mm. No, no, I, I'm getting confused. L look at the screen here for a second. Look at Exodus 19. This is a verse we referred to in the past. This is a classic text on who Israel was called to be at Mount Sinai. Look at these verses on the screen, Exodus 19, verse 5. God says at Mount Sinai, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be, remember these titles, my treasured possession, that's specifically given to Israel, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, do you hear that? Treasured possession kingdom of priests, holy nation, that's Israel. Now, look at 1 Peter 2, look at verse 9. But you are a, does this sound familiar? Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? He's talking to churches. 
They're, I mean, in one sense, they're not a nation. I mean, they're not like a political entity in that sense, but he uses the word nation to describe these churches. Why? He's using the titles of Israel, and who's he giving it to? He's giving it to the new Israel in Christ, the church. And he says, a people for my own possession, think my treasured possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We'll continue in a second, but Greg, why is it so important that these titles are being given to the church rather than to ethnic Israel at this point? Well, I mean, it's showing who the true people of God are. And what's interesting is he's not, he's not taking any time to say, well, this is just analogous. This is, you know, this is still true for Israel over here. And, you know, this is just something we're saying for the church because you're like that. No, he's recognizing uh, the reconstitution of the people of God in Christ, um, and therefore all of those titles are now legitimately transferred to the church. Um, I mean, you cannot come to any other conclusion. He doesn't say you're like a chosen race, you're like a royal priesthood. He says you are this. Um, this is exactly how God spoke to uh, Israel in the Old Testament, and now that Messiah has come, uh, the people of God are now... Uh, surrounding him. You can't have the people of God without the Messiah. They're now fixed on him and come from him. And so if you're in Christ, now this is true of you. It used to be if you're just ethnically Jew, but now in Christ, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and um, all of that. I think it was um, what Peter here, when he says uh, the holy nation, like that's an exact a quote um, of the Septuagint of Exodus 19.6. Yep, yep. So he's literally quoting Exodus, talking about Israel, and he's applying it directly to the church. I mean, this is absolutely huge. Again, this, this is something only the people of God are called. And either you are fully, truly, in every way the people of God to be this, um, or you're not. And so for him to say this, again, is saying, look, this is how we should think about the church. As you've said, the, the restored end-time Israel, if we understand that prophetic, uh, that prophetic outlook that in the, in, the, in the latter days Israel is going to be restored, what does that restored Israel look like? That's what the New Testament says is the church. Okay, The church is not Old Testament Israel in the same sense, but in another sense it is a restored Israel as God had promised it would be. Yeah, and if you look here, same passage still. Look at the very next verse, verse 11 on the screen. This is what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Is he again using Israel language, exiles, sojourners? And then he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see, uh, what you, you know, when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God. Do you see here, he's calling the non-Christians Gentiles, and he's calling the true Christians the elect exiles, the chosen race. He's switching all the language around. So where the non-Christians are now being called the Gentiles, the Christians are being given all the titles of Israel. I, again here, you, let me quote um, Schreiner here. The pink part says, using the term Gentiles for pagans indicates that the terminology of Israel is now applied to the church of Jesus Christ since the readers are predominantly Gentiles, not Jews. Uh, that, that's amazing. So let's go to Revelation now, Revelation 2. We were there this past summer. Uh, we did not dwell on this point, although it would be worthy to spend time on. We'll come back to it now. This is not something we talked about much in the summer series, but it, we could have, and we'll mention it here. Remember those seven letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Laodicea, etc. Look at the letter to Smyrna. Uh, this is chapter 2, verse 8 tells us it's Smyrna. Look at verse 9. This is very interesting. 
2.9 of Revelation, Jesus is addressing His church. He says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those, now look, who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I mean, do you hear what Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus is talking about a Jewish synagogue, right, in Smyrna, who has rejected Him as Messiah. And He says, have they, are they still, are they true Jews if they have rejected the Messiah? He says, they say that they are Jews, but they are not. So, an ethnically Jewish synagogue that, that rejects Jesus, Jesus says, you're not truly Jewish, because if you were truly a child of Abraham, you'd trust in me, his offspring. But the fact that you've rejected me means you're not truly Jewish. So he actually, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking. He calls the synagogue that rejects himself as Messiah a synagogue of Satan. And they're not, he says they're not truly Jews. That is radical language. And what is that saying? He's respelling and recasting the categories. Let me quote a commentary. This is again Schreiner. This is pretty amazing stuff. The Jews, no, I'm quoting the top part here. The Jews saw themselves as the synagogue of God. That's what they would have called themselves. We're the synagogue of Yahweh, believing that they were the people of the Lord. Jesus, however, remarks here that they are not truly Jews, even though they are convinced that they are true Jews, the true people of God. They were Jews ethnically, but not spiritually and truly, since they did not belong to the Lord Jesus. If you skip down to the next yellow section, it says the persecution, so they were persecuting the Christians, the synagogue. The persecution of believers demonstrates the Jewish opposition in Smyrna to the true people of God. It follows then that believers in Christ, Jesus' disciples, are true Jews. Paul argues that those who have received the Spirit are true Jews and the true circumcision. True Jewishness is a spiritual reality, and Paul identifies believers in Jesus Christ as the true Israel, which we'll get to momentarily. Now look at chapter 3 of Revelation, because it gets even stronger if that's not enough. Look at chapter 3. This is the church of Philadelphia. Skip down to verse 9. Behold, this is Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Greg, some words about this bowing down. I've got some verses to show here as we go, if you want to, if you want to kind of flip through these. Yeah, let, let's do that. Um, this is one of those things... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, like when you see the Old Testament backdrop, yep. it completely like opens your eyes to what's actually going on here. Like, because I had seen that many times before the bowing down yeah. and I was like, I don't, what does that mean? What does that mean? How do I make sense of that? What's going on there? But then you start to go back to the Old Testament and you start to see Jesus here is actually taking from Isaiah. We're going to see a lot in Isaiah and he's applying it to the church. Okay, so let's, let's look at several of these. Isaiah 45, 14. Um, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you when there is no other. There is no God um, besides him. Um, wait a minute, I just lost my place. All right, 49. Isaiah 49, um, starting in verse 21. And you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and... You can look at this right here. Yeah, let's use that. My laptop's not wanting to work. Um, he says, I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms 
and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. And so basically what you're seeing here, and we'll see a few more, is the enemies of God's people are being forced to come and bow down before God's people and acknowledge that the one true God is in the midst of God's people and that God's people are right and all these others are wrong. Okay, so there's this, they're going to come and they're going to have to acknowledge the true people can, can of God. Yeah, go ahead. And we'll look at the next one too. Each of these texts in Isaiah is predicting who's going to bow down to who. Pagan Gentiles are going to bow down to restored Israel. That's every single one of these texts. It's the, it's, the, it's the kings and foster fathers. It's these pagan kings who are bowing down to Israel, the restored Israel. And if you look at the next one here, Isaiah 60 uh, says this. Verse 3, and nations shall come to your light, kings to the brightness of your rising. Uh, I'm not going to read every verse. Let me skip ahead here. It, make, it speaks of people coming from Midian, uh, Sheba, and other nations. And then if you skip all the way down, uh, look at verse 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So you see, there's this theme. When Israel's restored, the Gentiles are going to come bow down to the true Israel, the restored Israel. And Greg, what do we see in the Revelation text that's let's, happening? Let's look at it again. Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. And so Jesus here is very clearly putting the church in the position of restored Israel. It was to restored Israel, as you said, that the enemies of God's people, pagan nations, were going to come and bow down to His restored people. And going with what we said before, if, if you're just merely circumcised in the flesh, it's really just pagan mutilation. And so Paul has basically argued that if you're outside of Christ, even if you're a Jew, you're like a pagan. And so what you see happening here is even the Jewish people coming and bowing down, as Jesus says they will, bowing down to his true Jewish people, the church. That's pretty amazing. Let me, again, I'll quote Schreiner again. I know I keep quoting him, but let me quote him again from his Revelation commentary. The Son of Man counters by saying that the Jews in the synagogue are not true Jews, picking up a common theme in the New Testament, that believers in Jesus Christ are true Jews, the true circumcision, the true sons and daughters of Abraham, and the Israel of God. Believers in Christ are God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of His own possession. They are God's people now. Ethnic Jews who remain loyal to the synagogue are not the true people of God. Here they are designated as those who lie. That's what Jesus says. They lie in claiming to be God's people when in reality they are not. John reverses an Old Testament text teaching that Gentiles will acknowledge the Jews to be the people of God, using it to declare that Jews will affirm Christians as the true people of God. John has taken this Jewish hope and turned it upside down. The Jewish opponents from the synagogue in Philadelphia will come and bow down before believers in Christ. I think that's a pretty amazing set of texts there. Now let's turn to Galatians. So let's go to our left here. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Turn to the very end of Galatians. We'll start with the most controversial verse, and then we'll work backwards from it. This is the very end of the book of Galatians, and we'll just start with some of the last verses of the book, verses 15 and 16. So Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 15, and see if this sounds familiar. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
Just stop there. Is that pretty much what we've seen over and over again? It doesn't matter whether you're ethnically this or ethnically that. What's all that matters? Whether we're a new creation in Christ, whether we've come to know Jesus. And then look at this next verse, which has been a hotbed of, (laughs) there's a lot of debate about how to understand this verse, verse 16. I'll read it in the ESV, and then we'll talk about how to translate this verse. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and the ESV says, and upon the Israel of God which is it's fine translation, but let's talk about that word, and upon the Israel of God. Um, you're not going to be able to read this because it's just way too small. But let, let me read a couple other translations of this verse. The NIV says this, peace and mercy be upon all who follow this rule, then it says dash, to the Israel of God. In other words, those who follow the rule, the church, equals the Israel of God. Uh, other translations, the, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, says this, may uh, peace come to all who follow this standard and mercy, even to the Israel of God. In other words, you're equating these two groups. The church and Israel are the same group. The New Living Translation, which paraphrases, goes even further, says, may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. Uh, that, that's a paraphrase, but you can see what they're saying. And so we won't get into a Greek grammar lesson. I'll just say this. The word and in the ESV, and the Israel of God, that word is the word kai in Greek. K-A-I, it looks like in English. Kai. That word is normally translated and in the Greek New Testament. Uh, If you put on the screen, this is a Greek dictionary. It's a conjunction. It can mean and, but it can also mean also, but, or even. Even would mean like the same thing. And uh, I think in this text, the argument is overwhelmingly strong that Paul means even, or as in peace be upon all who follow this rule, the church, which is the Israel of God, or even the Israel of God. I think that the argument is very strong for this. I'll quote Schreiner one more time, and then I'll turn it over to Greg here. Uh, Schreiner quotes, says it like this. This is the pink part. He says, it would be highly confusing to the Galatians after arguing for the equality of Jew and Gentile for the whole letter. <laughs> That's the whole point of Galatians, is that it doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're in Christ. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. It just matters that you know Jesus. That's, that's Paul's, one of his main arguments. It would be highly confusing to end a letter where you're making that point for six chapters to, to then say, there's a special separate blessing for Jewish Christians that there aren't for Gentile Christians. That would be to reintroduce the very wedge he's trying to get rid of in the book of Galatians. He's trying to show that no, ethnicity gives you no advantage or disadvantage in Christ. It's just being in Christ. That's the only thing that matters. It's not about Jew or Gentile. It's about being in Christ. Why would he end that letter by saying, peace and mercy upon the church. Oh, and there's a special blessing for Jewish Christians, the Israel of God. That would go against the whole point of the letter of Galatians. I think it is far more likely that he's saying the church is the, the true Israel of God in the Messiah is the church. So Greg, any thoughts about that? And we can move to other parts of Galatians as well. well I mean, we, we speak like this. It's, you know, it's one of those things we're, we're translating from, a, from an ancient language, trying to do our best in English. But you know, it's, it's equivalent to like if you say that team that won the Super Bowl this year, the Chiefs. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's, you're going from a kind of a general statement to a specific. Of, and, and the specific is simply giving more definition to the general that you just talked about. Um, and like you know, if you said the one who loves us so much, even Jesus, yeah, it's that would be the exact same, same kind, kind of thing. thing. Like, and so if we if we understand that we use that kind of point of emphasis in language a lot more than we realize, and it's actually not hard to reach the conclusion that what Paul is saying here is that you know peace and mercy upon all you know this rule, even the Israel of God. I mean, he's simply going from the generic or from the general to the specific of what he just talked about. We do that again, like. 
we, we have to be so careful when we read the Bible that we, we want to elevate it as God's Word. We want to revere it and all of that. But we also have to remember it was written, God gave us His Word in human language. Like people like you and me wrote the Bible. Okay, and so it's going to be with language conventions and stuff like that that you would use in everyday speech. That's why we can connect with it. God didn't give us some like heavenly language. He spoke to us through human language. It was the common language of the it day. It was the common language of the day, yeah. And so it's like we, like we understand how language works. Like, and we do stuff all the time. Guess what? It, that's reflected in the New Testament as well. I mean, obviously, Paul is a very gifted writer. He's very logical. He makes great arguments. But he's a human being writing as a human being and expressing himself, you know, in, in human language, human terminology, so that we can access it. And so it's not this big deal. And we're not like going against the text. We're not like forcing the text into some mold that it doesn't fit. Because I, we use this type of, of speaking it, people in their time did as well. You, you say something generally, you know, like you said, the, the one who loves us and saved us, Jesus Christ, even Jesus. You know, it's like, that's nothing crazy about doing that. And if we just allow for that type of usage, then all of a sudden the point that we're making just becomes a whole lot clearer. Yeah, I, I just say, so if you look at commentators on both sides of this debate, how to translate this verse, Everyone agrees, essentially, everyone agrees, according to Greek grammar, it can be translated either way. So that's, that's not the debate. The debate is, it can certainly go either way. The question is, context is key. Mm -hmm. So we, we know either translation works grammatically, but in the context of Galatians, which translation makes sense out of Paul's argument? And I want to be humble, but I am overwhelmingly convinced that there's one argument that makes far more sense, which is yes. that there is equality of Jew and Gentile in Christ, and that the Jew and Gentile in Christ is the true Israel of God. Now, if... If, that, if just that one part of argument, if just what we just said there is correct, the argument is completely finished as far as I'm concerned because we have the Apostle Paul calling the church the Israel of God in the text right in front of us, Galatians 6.16. In which case, I'm like, the debate's... I mean, as far it. as I'm concerned, these texts put together, I'm, I'm, I'm fully satisfied that, that the New Testament is teaching this, which goes back to something we said, I think when we were in this room, actually, a couple months ago, a few months ago, we, had to be, we were in here. Greg and I talked about how we never ever violate the Old Testament text, but the New Testament revelation, the, the lights are brighter, the lights are turned up. And the New Testament showed us with greater clarity that the new Israel was going to be conceived as through its identification with Jesus, the Messiah, and that would be the only identification badge of the new covenant people of God. It would not be all the Mosaic law. Right. And that was made more clear in the New Testament than in the Old. And so if we're trying to put our Bible together, we need to see especially what the New Testament authors say to get clarity on this issue. Mm -hmm. If all we have is the Old Testament, we might go astray. John the Baptist got some things wrong because of his... Like, people, if, if, if the, the lights were dimmer if all you have is Old Testament. Mm -hmm. We're not in any way changing or violating the Old Testament. We're seeing how the New Testament authors turn the lights up and see the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Jesus and in His bride, the church. And I think when the lights get turned up in the New Testament, we see that the promises to Israel are going to be fulfilled in Jesus, the true Israel, and then secondarily through His people, the church, which yeah. is the restored end-time Israel of God. Greg, we're almost out of time. Some last uh, thoughts here? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we, you and I have talked a lot about this going back and forth. Um, like, we, we have to let Scripture speak for itself and let the New Testament speak for itself. Um, and if the New Testament repeatedly says things, and I'm just going to you know, say in contrast to like dispensationalists, 
who would disagree with us, they constantly say that the New Testament can't say this, it can't say this, it can't say this. I read the New Testament and it keeps saying the things they say it can't say. And so who am I going to listen to? I'm going to let the New Testament speak for itself. And if the New Testament repeatedly, and not just here in Galatians 6, but in so many other places, keeps showing how everything is fulfilled in Christ, and it's in Christ that the church becomes the true Israel, um, the end times people of God. If, if the New Testament keeps saying these things about Christ and the church, then I'm going to go with the New Testament and I'm going to let the New Testament and I'm going to trust that the authors of the New Testament are not going to violate the Old Testament. They're not going to go contrary to the Old Testament. They're going to help us see what the Old Testament was actually saying and pointing to. Like, and so I want to go with them. And, and, and if, if someone says, well, it can't say that, it can't be that, but it keeps saying and being what they say it can't say and be, well, then I'm not, I'm not going to trust their perspective anymore because what they're saying is not what the Bible's saying. And I don't want to say that like with any arrogance or anything, but it's like the New Testament consistently pushes against this division between Israel and the church that is, that is so common for so many people. It says, well, no, you've got to keep this hard, fast distinction and Israel's Israel, the church is the church, and you can never, never see the two come together. And it's like, that is exactly what the New Testament says happens. And it's like, if that's what the New Testament is saying, then I'm going to go with the New Testament. Because again, the New Testament is only explaining further what was in the old, piecing it together the way it should be pieced together. And I'm going to go with that before I go with anything else. No, that's, that's true. So we're, we're going to wrap up right here. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer. Uh, Lord, I do ask that as we think about this, that you would show us uh, what, what your word really says. Uh, I know that there are major debates amongst, uh, amongst genuine believers on this point. I know it is, it's a matter that takes time to work through. But I do ask, Lord, that you would uh, show us what your word teaches, especially how the New Testament sees these threads coming together uh, in Christ, how all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And I pray, God, that you would show us that the promises you made in the Old Testament to your people Israel are fulfilled ultimately in Jesus and in your, uh, in your people, the restored Israel, which is the church, the, the Israel of God, as I believe Paul calls it in Galatians 6. So God, I pray that as in coming weeks that we would see this more clearly and also begin to flesh out the implications of this because it affects how we view in times, how we understand the nature of the church, how we understand the Old Testament prophecies, and a number of other issues. So I pray that you give us clarity as we go forward, and we thank you for this time together. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.